Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and his honorable court. morning everybody uh, and it, uh, wonderful to uh, look out the windows and uh, get to see the beautiful mountains around us uh, we don't have that in Raleigh uh, hence uh, the Supreme Court uh, is grateful for the opportunity we have to uh, return to an area where we used to hold court um, court uh, in the uh, 1840s late 1840s to 1860s uh, early 1860s would come to Morganton to hold court uh, and uh, our state constitution provides that uh, we hold court in Raleigh or such other places the General Assembly may designate so the General Assembly has designated for us to be able to come to uh, Morganton uh, in the west and Edenton in the east and it's uh, such a treat to get to be here uh, you'll notice that there are only six of us uh, Justice Hudson is participating uh, as she is watching the live stream, uh, but also she will be uh, uh, communicating, texting with uh, Justice Irvin uh, when she has questions that she would like asked. Uh, she's uh, uh, going through the, the protocol. Uh, uh, funny, three years ago, nobody, what protocol? Well, we all know what that means now. Uh, she seems to have been exposed. Uh, and speaking of COVID, uh, uh, sadly, uh, one of the attorneys in our last case tomorrow uh, has tested positive. So uh, if, if y'all know of anybody who is scheduled to come to see the last case on Tuesday, please tell them come early uh, uh, because there will not be a last case or there will not be a sixth case tomorrow or, uh, because of, of the illness of one of the attorneys. Uh, Council, we appreciate y'all being here this morning. And uh, the next case we have is State versus Hooper, and we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you. Uh, may it please the court. My name is John Carella, and I represent the appellant, Mr. Ivan Hooper. Uh, I've come here from the Office of Appellate Defender in Durham County. Sitting to my right at council table is Appellate Defender Glenn Girding. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Ivan Hooper's case comes to this court from a divided opinion in the Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals majority erroneously concluded that the trial court's denial of a requested jury instruction on self-defense was an invited error insulated from all appellate review. I'll begin my argument today by discussing the doctrine of invited error and the Court of Appeals expansion of that doctrine in this case. Next, I plan to address why Mr. Hooper's request for self-defense instruction was preserved for de novo review. And finally, I'll argue that self-defense was a substantial feature of this case, and the trial court committed a prejudicial error by denying Mr. Hooper's request for an instruction on self-defense. So first, to invited error. Prior to the Court of Appeals opinion here, invited error has been a relatively straightforward and long-standing rule in North Carolina. 
the basic gist of it is you cannot ask the court to do the wrong thing at trial or do the wrong thing yourself and then complain about it on appeal. Uh, as it's codified in the statute, the language is, a defendant is not prejudiced by the granting of relief which he has sought or by error resulting from his own conduct. The classic case showing uh, invited error was this court's decision in State v. Privat, a capital case from 2002. That was a case in which defense counsel asked the court for an instruction on uh, life without the possibility of parole as a possible verdict, and then argued that to the jury. And then on appeal, assigned as error, the giving of that instruction because, in fact, at the time the crime had been committed, life without the possibility of parole was not a, uh, an authorized sentence. Um, and this court found that the error was invited. Uh, defense counsel had actually requested that instruction and um, you know, argued it and could not then, the defendant could not then assign it for relief on appeal. Similarly, uh, State v. Barber, a court of appeals case from 2001, also cited in the briefs, shows how this can happen during trial. The defense requested that an unredacted exhibit be given to the jury and then on appeal uh, complained about that exhibit being given to the jury, although it was clear from the record that defense counsel knew it was not redacted and, and had made the request that it be submitted. What happened in this case is different. Here we had a three-day trial. Um, at the end of the second day, all of the evidence had been presented. Uh, the trial court held a charge conference, as required. Uh, defense counsel did not make a request for self-defense uh, at the charge conference. There was not a discussion of a self-defense instruction. The following morning, uh, when the parties came back before closing arguments and before the jury was called in, at that point, defense counsel requested the pattern instruction on self-defense. The trial court heard arguments from both of the attorneys and then denied defense counsel's request for the instruction. The Court of Appeals held that because counsel didn't make the request at the charge conference um, and didn't make an objection, I guess, at the end of the charge conference and then didn't make a second objection or request after the instructions were then read to the jury that this was an invited error, that counsel somehow brought about this error. This would be a, a broad expansion and, uh, of the doctrine described from cases like Prevet uh, and Barber. Uh, and it would expand invited error beyond recognition and essentially eliminate plain error review of, of jury instructions. Um, it's clear from this court's precedents, including the Lawrence and Odom cases, um, and also uh, State v. Coley uh, from just two years ago, which dealt with the self-defense issue, that uh, if there's no, if defense counsel had done nothing, if there was no objection, uh, the, the issue could be raised as, as plain error, would even get some review then. Um, but here, the trial court has somehow uh, transmuted what happened into this case into a supposed invited error that insulates it from all review. Um, this would defeat the purpose of the rules, which are to allow the trial court the opportunity. So what, what, do, what do you contend is the appropriate scope for the invited error doctrine? 
Well, the appropriate scope for the invited heir doctrine is that there needs to be an, an invitation, an action by counsel to uh, bring about the error complained of on appeal. So it's kind of a you asked for it, you got it kind of rule? That's right. That's right. And I would say that the, um, you know, if you want to discuss where the line is on this in terms of approving something, um, the case of State versus White, which is discussed in the Court of Appeals uh, opinion, uh, is a case about uh, that, wherein White, it was, it was again a capital case, and it, the issue was a, um, a peremptory uh, instruction, and the defense counsel didn't submit a proposed instruction or submitted a pattern instruction that didn't have the language he had asked for. And the trial court then proposed an instruction. So in, this, in that jury conference, unlike this one, there was a lot of discussion of the instruction at issue on appeal. Uh, and the trial court read out the language that the trial court was going to give. And defense counsel said, yes, that's, that's what I want. Um, you know, approved that language, and then it was given. Well, that was an invited error, because that essentially was counsel's request for the language that the court had given. There's nothing akin to that here. Are you saying then that the passivity of a defendant, conversely, cannot constitute invited error? The passivity here being the lack of voicing an objection at the time that it would have been appropriate and instead being tardy and doing it the next day? Um, I, I believe that's correct. It, this isn't a situation in which an objection is the issue. Um, so, you know, passivity might be something closer to white might be more possible when, if, if the trial court had read out, you know, a self-defense instruction. But here what we're dealing with is an instruction that was not given. Um, so there's not really a way for there to be, uh, for you to passively, uh, I was trying to be relevant to what my yeah. colleague Justice Irvin had yeah. raised that uh, you agreed with his assessment that it was in effect uh, to be colloquial about it. You asked for it, you got it. Then the reverse would be you don't ask for it, and therefore something's wrong. Yes, I mean this is this is. I think what you've described is sort of the the, the plain error scenario where no request is made, um, the issue just isn't raised before the trial court, and then there's the question of can you raise such an issue. Um, by meeting the high standards of, of, of plain air, um, because the trial court wasn't informed of it, the parties didn't discuss it, um, and now you want to raise it on appeal. Is the Court of Appeals perhaps using the wrong vernacular in calling it invited error then if, in fact, the defendant is derelict in bringing up an objection at, a, at an appropriate time, doesn't do it, and yet still plain error by your account would be appropriate? Well, I, I would contend that plain error is not appropriate in this case. This is a case where the issue has been preserved. But I would also just say that the Court of Appeals' opinion was clear about using invited error and that it was insulated from all review. And the court, in the alternative, said that uh, if this were plain error, we wouldn't meet that standard. Um, so the court was clear, the majority opinion was, was clear that that invited error is what um, the court was using, and the court um, pointed, again, only to the fact that at the end of the charge conference, um, when the court asked if there were any objections, uh, counsel said, I believe that information that's been articulated is accurate. 
um, which I would contend is kind of indistinguishable from saying I have no objections to you know, the instructions. That wasn't a discussion of a specific instruction. That was just at the close of the charge conference, do you have anything else, counsel? Counsel said no. Um, and the same thing after uh, the jury instructions were read. But at that point, counsel had made the request for the instruction and received a ruling on it, thus preserving the issue for appeal. So the distinction you then would make would be invited error is the defendant does something affirmative to produce what happened. Yes. Plain error would be where the defendant doesn't object but doesn't do anything affirmative to produce what happened. And it's preserved if an objection is made before the time that the uh, trial court allows the jury to begin its deliberations. That's correct. So I mean, that's the test you're asking us to adopt here? Yes, and I, and I believe this court, in terms of um, plain error and invited error, these tests are, have already been adopted by this court and are um, established in, in the cases. Um, this case um, doesn't really raise a new issue of, of preservation. Um, and let me just move on to the fact that this was preserved for full appellate review. Well, if, um, if, if I could, just so I, I understand. Certainly. Um, if, if counsel were to say, I have no objection to the instructions, Your Honor, would that be an affirmative action by, um, by that counsel? No. I mean, at why, the charge, in the situation here, where you have the charge conference, and uh, the court at the end of the charge conference asks, any further objections or requests, and counsel says no. Um, you say, whether you say, no, I don't have any, any objections, or no, I don't have any further requests, Counsel has simply not asked for anything else. Um, if there were discussion of a particular instruction, uh, as in White, where the trial court says, here's the language I'm going to read. Do you, do you object to this or do you agree to this? And counsel says, yes, this, I, I agree to this language. Um, I suppose you could frame it in some kind of negative. No, we have no objections to reading the language in the way that you've just read it, Your Honor. Um, that would be counsel endorsing an instruction given by the court. But here, there wasn't even a discussion of the self-defense instruction, which is absent from the charge conference. So it would be uh, intellectually difficult to try to transform counsel's single statement at the end of that charge conference into somehow approving affirmatively uh, that the trial court give instructions that, that do not include self-defense when it just wasn't discussed. Um, instead, it was discussed the following morning. And this is um, in compliance with Rule 10 of the Rules of Appellate Procedure and General Rules of, of Practice 21 and the policies behind those rules. Uh, the notion in, in jury instructions is that we want the, the, the trial court to get it right. You know, this court wants the trial court after, and, and this is different from you know, rulings that are made during evidence. At this point, all the evidence has been presented, and Rule 21 suggests that the trial court slow down, hold a conference, and gives multiple opportunities for objections to make sure that the instructions given to the jury reflect the evidence that was presented, uh, give the jury all of the options that they should have, and that parties can raise any requests or objections at that point. And the language of Rule 10 is about making the request outside the presence of the jury you know, before the jury retires. And that was completely met in this case. 
It was not, the, the request was not made at the formal charge conference, but that is not a requirement for preservation. The requirement for preservation for making it timely is really making it before the jury retires. There are even some circumstances in which, I mean, the rules set up for corrections to instructions if it's realized that the jury needs to be recalled. Um, and the entire point of these rules is to encourage parties to, to get all these requests on the record and also um, to, to make sure that there's integrity to jury verdicts, that there's not you know, unnecessary questions about the instructions that are given because this is such an important phase of the, the trial process. Um, it's how also- do, How do we figure into it while you're there? Uh, how do we figure into it the fact that not only was there a failure of the defendant to object but that conversely, he also agreed with the instructions that were going to be given prior to their being given to the jury. Um, I would just say that there's no express agreement that's relevant to the absence of, of a, a defense instruction or even to any particular instruction that was given in this case. I mean, if there were an error um, in one of those instructions that the trial court had read, either if the trial court gave it differently than uh, it was proposed, or if trial counsel had simply not made an objection, that would be, you know, that could be raised as a plain error issue. It wouldn't be an invited error. Now, if, if one fails to object and then as well agrees with what is going to be given to the jury as a charge, then isn't the juxtaposition of the two invited error? No. And the, the reason for that is, is if, if that were the case, the, the agreement here, I mean, this is important, but the agreement that the, the, the Court of Appeals pointed to here is simply answering the question at the end of the charge conference, do you have any objections or requests? No. That is the same as not objecting. There are these different cases like White where there is an extended discussion of a specific jury instruction and counsel indicates to the court approval of that instruction in some way. But, but that's not the case here. And, and none of the issue, the issue in this case doesn't relate to any of the um, instructions that the, the trial court uh, actually, that, that, that were listed during the charge conference. Somewhere so the, in the briefs, the term acquiescence is used to describe what the defendant did. Is acquiescence different from agreement? I'm not sure if acquiescence would be different from agreement. I don't think there was acquiescence or agreement here because the defendant made a request for a jury instruction that was denied. So, um, so, so would there be a difference then if the defendant at the end of the, and I understand that the defendant later raised the right. self-defense issue prior to the time that the, the jury was permitted to retire and begin its deliberations, but let's just say for purposes of discussion that everything ended at the conclusion of the charge conference. If the defendant had said in response to the trial court's inquiry, yes, Your Honor, I think you got it right, that's all we need to do. Would that be invited error? No. I, I, at the end of the charge conference, I, I, again, this is no different from um, and not objecting to what the, the judge has read. There's, there's no the scenario you've described. There's no discussion of a particular uh, instruction or any specific language that counsel has approved. If that's not a discussion of something very specific, 
to change that into a uh, blanket adoption, insulating all appellate review from anything that was read during the charge conference or anything that might have been included in the charge conference would eliminate this court's doctrine of plain error. And it would lead to attorneys having to go through this sort of formalistic second guessing of what they say at the end of the charge conference. I mean, it's, this is a standard exchange that occurred here where the judge, in compliance with the rules, you're trying to give counsel every chance to bring something up. Do you have anything else to offer? And if, a, if, if an attorney should use a you know, phrase like, no, that sounds right, instead of, no, I don't have objections, um, is that really going to make the, the, is there a distinction between those two? And in this case, I don't know that it's even that clear what the attorney, that, that the attorney was going that far. It was just sort of using an awkward phrase here, right? I believe the information that's been articulated is accurate. Uh, it's, an, it's an odd way to say it. And well, the instructions weren't inaccurate. I mean, the judge sort of read, you know, pattern instructions. The, the question is here is about self-defense and that issue simply wasn't part of the charge conference, and even if it had been, it was squarely raised the following morning. Um, so aren't you, so aren't, are, is your argument then essentially that if we were to affirm the Court of Appeals holding here that this was invited error, there would no longer be any plain error regarding jury instructions? Essentially, um, essentially, or the only way of avoiding plain error would be being very formalistic about the language at the end of the charge conference to you know, make some blanket statement of preserving any issue that, that may arise that was not raised. You know, or not formally you know, <laughs> saying, well, you, Your Honor, I can't really agree to that, but we'll just move on. Um, you know, I don't know what attorneys would, would, would say there. Um, before your time runs out, talk to me about why, in your view, the evidence supported the self-defense instruction here. My understanding of self-defense put in not real specific terms is that you're entitled to act in self-defense if you reasonably believe yourself to uh, be about to sustain an injury or to uh, have harmful or offensive contact, you are entitled to use force to uh, defend yourself. Yes. Uh, the testimony that you seem to be relying on in support of your substantive argument is the uh, uh, testimony of Ms. Donnell, if that's the correct way to pronounce her name. I think it's Donnell. I'm sorry? I think it's Ms. Donnell. Donnell, okay. Multiple ways to pronounce it, <laughs> and I can almost invariably get them wrong when we do that. But at any rate, it's, it, am I correct in, in, in understanding that essentially your substantive argument is based on Ms. Donnell's testimony? Um, that's not entirely correct, Your Honor. Okay, well, um, then tell me, let tell me, me what let, And I, I'm glad you brought this up. The, because this is also um, important to, to the sort of side issue of discovery and a few other things. The first time that this self-defense came into this case was on the direct examination of Officer Joyce by the prosecutor during the state's case. Um, and this is from volume two, page 120 of the transcripts. When the state elicited from Officer Joyce Mr. Hooper's statements when he was in the hospital bed with the gunshot wound as to what happened. Um, and that's when Mr. Hooper said that 
He had a conversation that turned into an argument with Ms. Thomas. She pulled out a gun and shot him in the leg. He also said that he saw the firearm and then advanced toward her and tried to get the firearm from her, and that's when they struggled. Well, is, is a shooting that occurs in the course of a struggle over a gun, is that self-defense? This is the, what, what the, the, the conflict in the evidence is here that the jury well, I mean, but to I'm, I mean, in, you know, in order for the self-defense instruction to be appropriate, there has to be some view of the evidence right. that would permit the jury to find that the defendant acted in accordance with the legal standards for self-defense. Uh, I see evidence in the record from which one could infer that uh, the accident, either the injuries occurred during that, the injuries that underlay the assault conviction occurred during a struggle over a gun. How, do, how does that evidence, assuming that's a fair characterization of what we've got, and if it isn't, tell me, uh, assuming that that's what we've got, how does that support a finding of self-defense sufficient to constitute a defense to the assault charges that were lodged against the defendant in this case? I hope that's clear enough that that's, you can That's answer. very okay. clear. The, the version of the evidence that I think is in the light most favorable to the defendant from this, this testimony and that supports um, self-defense is that Ms. Thomas brought the gun to the hotel room and pointed it at Mr. Hooper before the assault. And, and at that point, he's entitled to do anything and everything? What, what's the... Uh... Then it, it goes into, I mean, this is the analysis the jury never got to conduct. Um, has, you know, who is the aggressor? Um, was the aggressor using deadly force? I mean, this case, this court in cases like State versus well, Holloman, for, for example, with deadly force, doesn't there have to be some evidence that, that, that he actually uh, and reasonably feared that deadly force would be used against him or that he would sustain serious bodily injury? Certainly, and that evidence can come from inferences that the jury can make from the facts that they, that well, they the, learn, the, the, including the, the, the presence of the firearm. To, inferences, not just any and all inferences that they could possibly make, it's a, it'd have to be a reasonable inference. It have to be a reasonable inference. And I, I, was, I would point to this, this court's um, decision in State versus Holloman in 2017 about this, this inference issue, um, in which this court approved a, and it's very different facts there, in which we had sort of two, um, armed parties, but, but there was a question about the display of a firearm. And the trial court had issued an instruction that one who initially displays a firearm to his opponent intending to engage in a fight and use deadly force is the aggressor and cannot sort of have the benefit of self-defense. Now, the, that's not quite the question here because it's not the defendant who had the firearm, but it stands for the proposition that to display a firearm, a deadly weapon, and he was ultimately shot with this, we know it was a loaded gun, uh, to the other person with an intent to use it uh, is, um, you know, a, an invocation of deadly force that so, allows the person so, to respond. So to, to understand, make sure I'm understanding your argument, is the mere display of an evidence of, of, of a firearm sufficient to trigger a right to use force in self-defense? If, if, if there's a threat to use it and if it's being pulled out and pointed. I mean, someone points uh, a gun at you, I think that's a classic uh, kind of case in which you have uh, some right of self-defense at that point. 
you believe you're being threatened with a deadly weapon. And the defense evidence, the other defense evidence, aside from Ms. Donnell's statements um, about what, you know, the version of, of the event that Ms. Thomas gave her and that Mr. Hooper gave her, was also the testimony from uh, Ms. Machoa that Ms. Thomas had, in, in advance of this, said that she had bought this gun and would have no problem using it on Mr. Hooper, that there were statements from which the jury could, uh, that would sort of bolster an inference that there was an intention to use this. And finally, there's that jury verdict on the other felony charge in this case. Mr. Hooper was facing a, a felony for possession of firearm, possession of firearm by a convicted felon. The story that the, the state put forward, Ms. Thomas's story, was that there was a gun in the hotel room and it was lying on, on, on the, the stand. Right? The defense evidence before reasons to believe Ms. Thomas bought, had a gun and brought it. The jury decided that Mr. Hooper was not guilty of possession of that gun and they were instructed on constructive possession. So I think that the, what can be taken from that is the jury must have concluded that that was not the state of affairs, that there was not a gun waiting in the hotel room, that Ms. Thomas brought it. The jury never had the opportunity to go through the full analysis of self-defense under those facts. Let me ask you a question that I think Justice Hudson would like me to ask. Are you asking that we adopt the dissent in its entirety, or is there any part of the dissent that you don't agree with? Um, this court could certainly adopt the dissent. In what this what case, would you recommend that we do? I know, you know the question of what we can and what we should do are frequently two different yeah, things. Yeah, I, I think it would be, um, it would also be helpful to have an opinion from this court sort of delineating why this is not invited error and what invited error is. I believe that would be useful. Is there, is there anything in the dissent with which you disagree? Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe so. Okay. I don't believe anybody. That's always a fair. That's always a fair answer, Mr. Crowell. Thank you. I'll, I'll reserve my remaining time. Thank you, counsel. We're from the appellee. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, may it please the court. I'm Zach Ezor from the Department of Justice here on behalf of the state. Uh, it's good to be with you all in Morganton today. The evidence at trial showed, and the jury found that Mr. Hooper strangled and beat Ms. Thomas and did so in front of their three-year-old son. Ms. Thomas testified under oath that in that moment, Mr. Hooper said he was going to kill her. Amazingly, she broke free and grabbed a weapon. When Mr. Hooper lunged for her, she fired a shot at the ground, hitting him in the leg. At that point, he relented and she was able to leave the hotel with her son. To the extent there was any evidence in this case related to self-defense, it was vanishingly thin. As the trial court noted, and- well, Of course, of course, the standard is not whether it's vanishingly thin, the standard is whether there's any evidence of it, isn't it? Well, Justice Irvin, as you pointed out, it's whether there's evidence of each and every element of right. self-defense. And as the trial court but, noted- I mean, the, the reason that things like vanishing may worry me a little bit because that then's almost asking us to start weighing the evidence and we try very hard not to do that. Understood. Well, let me talk about the specific deficiencies in the evidence, Your Honor. As the trial court noted, there was no evidence of Mr. Hooper's subjective belief, which of course is a necessary element of self-defense. And moreover, the state amply demonstrated that Mr. Hooper was the initial aggressor in this case which makes him not entitled to claim self-defense. For those two reasons, the trial court did not err in failing to issue the requested instruction. 
Can I ask you about the first point you made, that there was no evidence of his state of mind? And um, the trial court, in denying to uh, giving the self-defense instruction, says, and because we don't know what was in the defendant's mind because he exercised his constitutional right not to testify, and we don't know what he was thinking or what he believed. Isn't that essentially creating a standard that you can only be entitled to a self-defense instruction if you testify? Your Honor, that's not our law. <laughs> I completely agree uh, Mr. Hooper had every right not to testify, and of course, evidence of his reasonable belief, uh, belief can come in through other means. Um, our position is simply that it just didn't in this case. Well, well, we haven't talked about the evidence that he offered through his mother's testimony of what um, the victim told her when they had the telephone conversation, and she was very clear in her testimony that she was told that um, the fight, which resulted in the victim's injuries, didn't occur until after the gun had been fired once. Well, even then, um, you know, and Justice Irvin, I believe, was touching on this, uh, that is not um, indicative of what the defendant believed in his subjective mind um, was going to happen. So you're saying it would be unreasonable for a jury to believe that if she had brought a gun, again, we have to take the, light, the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant, that, that she had brought a gun to the hotel room, had fired it once, he still was not entitled to believe, reasonably believe that he could use some kind of force to defend himself? Well, Your Honor, this gets to my second point, which is the evidence presented that he actually was the first aggressor in this case, in which case Ms. Thomas's uh, use of the gun would actually have been warranted. And that evidence stretches back weeks before this incident began. Evidence that Mr. Hooper routinely came to her family home, um, had threatened her, that she had blocked her phone number because she was afraid of him, that when they went to a family funeral, she didn't want to be alone with him, so she asked her uncle to accompany them, that he had asked her to purchase bullets for him because he was a convicted felon and could not do it himself. She invited him and her, and her son, rather, to the hotel, and that before any of this happened, the conversation that he alluded to uh, with Officer Joyce was him getting right in her face, asking her about romantic partners, which obviously was very tense, um, and then, uh, in her testimony, berating her. Well, so I understand that the jury should weigh that evidence and should decide who they believe, and that there was evidence that he was um, aggressive towards her in the past. But in, de in deciding whether or not the evidence that he presented and the evidence taken in the light most favorable to him is sufficient to support a self-defense instruction. How is all of that being evidence that's taken in the light most favorable to the defendant? Um, it's a good question, Your Honor. And um, I would point to this court's decision in, in State v. Coley as sort of a counterexample because what we have here is a, an instance where the defendant's side of the story, if you will, is just a narrow snapshot of the course of events. In contrast to Coley, where you've got you know, evidence that the gunshot victim had stalked and pursued Mr. Coley, who was in a wheelchair, you know, broken his door down, um, assaulted him for being a snitch before a gun was fired. Um, here, the state actually presented uh, a mountain of evidence that the opposite had occurred, that Mr. Hooper had actually threatened and pursued Ms. Thomas, um, you know, asked her to come to the hotel room and then had started accosting her. If we take only um, the version of events offered to Officer Joyce, that excludes you know, all of that um, that happened beforehand. 
and, and I really don't read State v. Coley to support um, the idea that viewing the light, the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant would require us to do that. Yeah, so, so your testimony is, I mean, your testimony, your argument is that the uh, trial court in determining whether to submit a self-defense instruction, which I, doesn't look like actually a decision to that effect was ever made here, uh, is supposed to look at the parts of, I mean, other parts of the state's evidence in order to decide whether the evidence that's favorable to the defendant supports self-defense? My position is that if the state has offered evidence which is in all respects uncontroverted, which I would say the evidence prior to the actual encounter at the hotel was. Is, is the jury required to believe uncontroverted evidence? Um, no, Your Honor, but for purposes of determining whether each and every uh, element of self-defense could be supported by the evidence, I believe it's the trial court's duty to take that holistic view of the evidence presented to ensure that all of the components of self-defense at least have some you know, twig to be hung on. But, well, you said it's uncontroverted evidence, but wasn't there also evidence that the defendant produced to show that, that the victim here was, in fact, the aggressor, that she had obtained a gun, that she had brought it to the hotel room, that she had made statements to other people before the shooting, um, saying if, if he comes around again, she wouldn't have no problem using the gun? That was also an evidence. I think we're, it's important to really take a close examination of the evidence here, uh, Your Honor, because my review of the transcript, um, no one actually ever said that Ms. Thomas brought a gun to the hotel room. There was evidence that she had acquired a weapon for her own protection when Mr. Hooper was coming by her family home um, and threatening her. That was a, a 22 semi-automatic, completely different from the 357 that fired the shots here. Um, and, you know, so it's not inconsistent with her testimony um, that shots were fired. She, she admits that. Um, she, was, was, there, was there evidence that uh, the victim had, brought a, had bought a gun prior to this episode? Um, no, actually, I believe she acquired a gun from a friend. Well, okay, she yeah. obtained a gun. I mean, I'm not, so there, there is evidence that she had obtained a gun prior to this incident in the hotel room. Yes, but... Um, uh, is, there, is there any evidence one way or the other as to whether the defendant knew that? Um, I do not believe there's evidence one way or the other as to uh, whether the defendant knew that. Um, certainly others who testified at trial knew that, um, but as to whether Mr. Hooper knew that, I, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, Your Honors, I want to just stress that uh, the lens of viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant only applies when we're talking about whether there was an error. And even if an error occurred here, the state's position is that it was not prejudicial. Because at that point, this court's review becomes objective and holistic. Would it have made a difference if the self-defense instruction were issued here? Well, it's, 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 it's depending upon what standards you look at, it's either is there a reasonable possibility that the outcome might have been different or is, it a, is there a reasonable probability, depending on what standards you're looking at, right? Absolutely, Your Honor. You don't have to show like a greater than, you know, more likely than not, at least if the error is preserved. Sure. So our position is that uh, either standard, uh, there was no prejudice here. But, um, you know, going to whether plain error review should apply here or 
or invited error. Um, the Court of Appeals, I think, faithfully thought it was applying this court's precedent in State v. White. Well, but, but as a practical matter, the only thing that the rule requires is that there be an objection prior to the time that the jury retires to deliberate. Isn't that right? That's what Rule 10A2 says. Well, that, that, that's, that's the rule that governs whether something's preserved or not, isn't it? Uh, I, I may be splitting hairs here, Your Honor. Well, um, but sp split, split, sure, away if, sure. split away if need be. Sure. Um, that, that is absolutely what 10A2 uh, requires. Our position is that counsel's conduct in this case, which was vacillating and inconsistent throughout trial, um, obviated any objection that he made that would have in the abstract. Well, tell me even splitting hairs how sure. you can get that result out of what Rule 10A2 says. Sure. So um, really we're getting into territory that's almost akin to waiver here. And you know we were talking about some affirmative action versus, um, as Justice Morgan said, uh, you know, passivity. And if I may, Your Honor, so what we have here is uh, an error that resulted from defense counsel's conduct. That's the second prong of the codification of the invited error standard. How did that happen? First, we have the failure to give uh, the required notice under the statute. Then we swing in the other direction. Um, counsel made some insufficiency motions at the close of the evidence which alluded to defense. That's on the other side. We've got the charge conference at which counsel says that the instructions that were proposed were accurate. We swing back again with the request for the instruction moments before the jury goes to deliberate. And then finally, the trial court again says, now, are there any corrections that need to be made to the instructions that I've issued? And counsel says, no, Your Honor. Well, but generally speaking, though, the rule says as long as, you, as long as you lodge an objection prior to the time that the jury deliberates, the instructional error is preserved. I mean, it says that, doesn't it? I, I won't disagree that that is what the rule says. Okay. Well, and the rule is the rule that the court has promulgated for the purpose of determining what a counsel's got to do in order to preserve an instructional issue for purposes of appellate review, right? Well, let's imagine a scenario where... But, but, but that's the purpose of that rule, and that's why it's there. It is, but to push back, Your Honor, there's a purpose to the invited error rule as well, which is to preserve the integrity of the trial court proceedings and prevent counsel... Well, all, all, of these, all of these rules are intended to preserve the integrity of the, tr the trial process by requiring, by requiring that issues be brought to the attention of the trial court so that the trial court can rule on them. Sure. But if the issue is brought to the attention of the trial court in a way that is either muddied or inconsistent or confusing, I mean, perhaps this is not the case to, to articulate this point, but you can imagine a scenario where, you know, 10 times counsel says, uh, I, I don't want this instruction, I'm fine with that. And then one time they say, I think you should include it. You know, that I think gets us closer to the line of what invited error is all about and what it's trying to do, which is to protect the trial court um, and not allow counsel to even inadvertently manufacture an error for appeal. So, so are, are you saying that uh, uh, first a question of, of what actually happened, did counsel present the, its requested instruction in written form to the trial court? Do we know that? I don't believe so, Your Honor. So. Um, after the uh, 
council says, well, I think instruction, whatever the number is, uh, should have been, should be given. And when the trial court says, well, I want to hear from the state and the trial court rules on it, is it the state's position at that point, the attorney, uh, in order to preserve it needs to say, I want to note an objection. That is the state's position. Um, and that really the pivotal moments here are, uh, the charge conference, you know, the, the time immediately following, which is before the jury goes to deliberate. And then again, when the trial court pursuant to 10 a two is trying to correct any errors and asks defense counsel, if any corrections need to be made, that's, that's really the, the pivotal moment here. And those are the portions of state v. white that it seems the court of appeals, uh, was trying to follow in earnest. So it seems to me, uh, having, I haven't participated in these types of conferences that often requests are made that the court may not follow or they may follow in part. Uh, I guess the state's position would be that if a party wants to preserve it, they need to plainly say, I object that my request was, was not uh, allowed. Um, there are court of appeals decisions which say that a request on its own um, amounts to an objection. Um, I, I could not find a case from this court saying that. Um, it's, that seems commonsensical. My recollection is we held something like that in the civil context in Wall versus Stout, which I think appears in volume 310, but I may be wrong about that. Um, uh, per perhaps, Your Honor, I, I'm not sure. Um, but, but, but going to the Court of Appeals cases then, are you, are you asking us to overrule State versus Roe, which is one of those instances in 2013 where the court said, as defendants specifically requested the trial court to include a jury instruction, here it was on simple, simple assault, and argued that point before the court, we hold that he properly preserved this issue for appellate review. The fact that counsel did not say the words, I object, is not reason to deny appellate review in this case. So you're asking us to overturn that? No, Your Honor. Uh, I, I am not suggesting that there's some sort of magic words that counsel needs to say in order to preserve the objection. Um, you know, we have not argued that in our brief, but simply that in light of everything else that happened in this trial, there needs to be some clarity about what counsel actually wants so that the trial court is not put in this position of saying, well, yesterday you agreed with me, and today you disagree. Um, well, Todd, it, 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 you alluded to this a second ago, and I'm afraid some of my questions pulled you off of it, so let's go back to it a second. We, of course, have a statutory requirement. I think it's contained in the discovery statutes that require defendants who intend to rely on certain uh, affirmative defense, what could traditionally be called affirmative defense, is to give notice to the state prior to trial so that the state would be aware that they would need to deal with that fence. That was not done here. I don't think there's any question about that. No question. Uh, given that the uh, requirement is contained in the discovery statutes, is that something that should be dealt with as a discovery violation, or is there some other approach that should be taken uh, to deal with the failure on the part of a defendant to, to 
comply with the requirement to, to give notice of an affirmative defense? I think it's relevant in two ways. Um, the first is, as you say, uh, it could be the basis for a discovery violation, and I'm happy to talk about you know, why the, what the trial court did here um, was an appropriate sanction. But the second is that, as I've said, I think it can be viewed as part of the invited error analysis. Has counsel, through their actions, brought on the error that they now complain of? Um, so this is, was really sort of step one, you know, the train leaving the station, if you will, on counsel's, um, you know, muddying conduct that uh, invited error here. So let's talk about, talk about the discovery part of that a second, and we may move on to the other uh, sure. a minute later. But at least as I understand, uh, and this is something that Justice Hudson wanted me to, to ask, I think, uh, there's generally a requirement, as I understand it, that there be certain findings made in order to impose a discovery sanction. Defendant's argument seems to be, well, you can't treat this as a discovery sanction because those findings weren't made. Uh, one, is that correct that those findings weren't made? And secondly, if so, what does the state have to say in response to your colleague's argument about the lack of findings? I will be the first to admit that what the court said here was not the most uh, fulsome explanation. But I do think, nonetheless, it satisfied the statutory requirements. And let, let me explain why. You know, 15A, 910, B, and D require the court to make findings justifying a sanction. In doing so, consider the totality of the circumstances surrounding noncompliance, that's the first part, and assess the materiality of the subject matter at issue. How did the court do that? Well, it specifically noted that there was no notice given and that counsel had agreed. I'm to sorry, that there was what? That there was no notice given. I'm sorry, I'll stand closer to the microphone. That there was no notice given and that counsel had specifically agreed to the instructions the day before. That was the court's analysis of the circumstances. On materiality, the court said the evidence of self-defense was insufficient to support the instruction, in particular, the lack of evidence about Mr. Hooper's subjective belief. That was the materiality prong. So while I admit that you know, it would have been great if there were a more uh, lengthy explanation of the court's uh, analysis here, it did offer some justification. It was not just simply a, a summar you know, summarily denied. Um, shouldn't the consideration of the circumstances under this um, requirement include some determination of whether there was any prejudice to the state and how this impacted the overall fairness of the trial? Well, the state has explained in the colloquy um, over this issue that um, the failure to provide notice, you know, was a significant, significant discovery violation because it um, did not allow the state to prepare to rebut um, the evidence that was offered. And the trial court, uh, you know, implicitly adopted that when it said, I have to agree with the state, um, who had spoken moments before the DA did. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's what I would say, uh, Justice Earls, um, allows this to be viewed as a discovery sanction. Defendant has couched what the Court of Appeals has done as an expansion of the invited error principle. Do you see it as that? Is this a straight application of what currently is uh, that doctrine, or is it something else? Um, Justice Morgan, again, I think the Court of Appeals saw it as a straight application, specifically applying State v. White and the factual similarities to this case. 
but I will admit there are distinctions between white and this case. Specifically in, in white, um, the instruction had been requested um, and accepted, whereas here, if, if it was requested, that request was denied. But again, with those pivotal moments being a request um, or a failure to request the instruction at the charge conference, seemingly assenting to the proposed instructions, and then again, failing to object when the trial court comes back around and asks if any corrections need to be made. That's state v. white. We would put forward a, a sort of alternative theory here, which is that you know, the amalgam of the conduct at trial um, could also invite error under the second prong of the codification of the invited error standard, which simply says an error <coughs> resulting from counsel's conduct or defendant's conduct. I heard you use a term assenting. There's nuance involved here. I raised the term acquiescence, which is somewhere in the materials. Is there a distinction between assenting, acquiescence, and agreeing? And all those terms have been used uh, in some form or fashion in the appellate materials. This is one of the difficulties of dealing with a cold record because I think some tone would have been very helpful here. Um, you know, the exact language defense counsel used was, uh, I believe the instructions are accurate, has been articulated. Um, the next day, uh, the trial court said, you told me that you thought they were satisfactory. So, you know, if we could read in at all to the trial court uh, there, you know, characterizing uh, the tone of defense counsel's language, um, I think it, it gets closer to assent. Um, but uh, you're right, Your Honor, that this is a difficult thing to assess on a cold record like this. So what should we do with this? Um, Again, I would say that uh, what this court should do is view that interaction alongside the failure to give statutory notice and the failure to later object if there were any you know, doubt about the correctness of the instructions after uh, the jury had been sent to retire so that the jury could have been recalled. There's one other thing related to preservation that I, I really wanna make sure I touch on. Um, the pattern jury instructions that were given in this case for assault by strangulation and assault on a female <coughs> actually include uh, the phrase without justification or excuse. Without justification or excuse. The trial court delivered these instructions verbatim. This is at 238 and 239 of the transcript. I'm not suggesting that these you know, few words are the equivalent of the pattern instruction that was requested. But to the extent there's been an insinuation in the briefing that the jury's hands were tied, that without a defense instruction, they, they could not have found that Mr. Hooper's conduct here was excused or justified. That uh, simply uh, is not uh, okay. the case. Help, help me a little bit. If you're not saying that that's uh, the equivalent of a self-defense instruction, why would it then be sufficient to allow a jury to consider self-defense? Well, I think it goes to prejudice, Your Honor, because the jury had the opportunity, they, they did have the opportunity to find self-defense here, even in the with, absence without of instruction. instruction. and without knowing what it was? Well, again, um, counsel argued uh, that, you know, and unfortunately we don't have the closing arguments here, but um, counsel seems to have made it a point in this case to frame Mr. Hooper's conduct as being defensive. And I just think it's notable that the court, uh, or the jury here rather, um, had the opportunity to find that the conduct was justified 
as being defensive, um, but opted not to. And that simply just goes to the prejudice prong, showing that the result would not have been different because the jury, assumedly, would have ruled the same way um, if given a more specified instruction. Um, Can I ask you your response to the argument that if we agree with the Court of Appeals analysis that this was invited error, then that then in every case where counsel does, fails to object, it's invited error, and there would no longer be any plain error review of jury instructions? Um, I, I perhaps have not made myself clear, Your Honor, because we are not arguing that agreeing with the Court of Appeals in this case would dissolve uh, the opportunity for plain error. Um, we're just saying under the facts of this particular case, counsel's conduct resulted in the error that they now allege on appeal. Right, but how does this conduct, how is this conduct different from any case? And, 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 and plain error applies if there was no request for a jury instruction that was denied. So how, what, is, what is different about this case from the situation where there's no request for an instruction, but yet the failure to give it can, in some circumstances, be plain error? The difference is um, counsel's failure to provide the required statutory notice, the language, I believe what's been articulated is accurate, which you know I understand can be viewed in a number of ways. And then again, when offered the opportunity to correct any errors after having requested a specific instruction saying uh, no corrections are needed, that those three things actually amount to an assent. Justice Hudson wanted me to ask you also to that, the last point that you made that couldn't the uh, comments that the defendant's trial counsel made at the conclusion of the jury charge be nothing more than an attempt to avoid doing any incons anything inconsistent with his request that the court instruct in accordance with the patterns? Um, Your Honor, I, I think it's more likely that um, counsel was, uh, you know, reweighing whether it was important to uh, object here um, and simply decided it's not worth making this correction. Is it also possible that I mean, we're going to talk about possibilities? I mean, he's already raised the question of self-defense that was shot down. I mean, what's the point in reiterating it if you've got a rule that says I've, I've asked for it once, I didn't get it, well, already, already got that issue taken care of? The, the point would be, Your Honor, um, you know, reflecting on the confusion that there seems to have been here about whether uh, Mr. Hooper was pursuing self-defense or not, uh, to clarify. Um, and to prevent, you know, the arguments that we're having now by simply clarifying, yes, we mean to object. Um, so I, I see I'm, I'm running low on my time here. Um, are there any further questions that uh, I could answer either about preservation, um, error, or prejudice? Okay, thank you. And um, I'll just say again, it's an honor to be here today, and we would ask this court to affirm. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you. Um, I want to respond to the state's argument. I want to focus quickly on two cases uh, from this court, uh, State v. Maskey from 2004, which is a capital case, and uh, State v. Dooley, a self-defense case from 1974. Um, Maskey was a case in which uh, an objection was made and corrections were made to the um, charges at issue, it was in a capital instruction context, the morning after 
the charge conference. There had been a charge conference. The next morning, there was discussion, and there were objections at that point. In that same case, uh, the judge made errors during the jury instructions that were not in accord with what the parties had agreed, and um, the counsel did not object. This court held that that was preserved and also cited its, its decisions from Ross and uh, Pakulski that requests for an instruction are, can preserve that issue even if counsel does not notice the error uh, during the time the instructions would be read. Similarly, the uh, Roe case from the Court of Appeals was based on this court's case in State v. Collins, which seemed to acknowledge also that a request for an instruction is equivalent to um, an objection. Uh, the Dooley case, I'm, I'm going to cite, and this is consistent with um, other cases, including uh, Coley more recently, but Dooley was a case in which the jury was actually given the law of self-defense, and there was some closing argument on self-defense, and uh, the case was reversed because the trial court omitted the mandate allowing the jury to use that, uh, giving them the option of an acquittal based on self-defense. Um, so Dooley stands for the proposition that not only is this justification language not enough, but the sense that the jury may have, in closing, heard something about self-defense, et cetera, is not enough. The jury needs a vehicle to lawfully use this evidence, and self-defense you know, requires them to go through this very specific analysis, which can result in an acquittal specifically on the basis of self-defense. Um, I'm also going to note the pattern instructions do not need to be physically given in a, in a written form. That's the point of the um, pattern instructions and a number of cases, including White, involved reference to the pattern instructions and then the parties have a discussion. It's not actually clear from the record whether the attorney handed up a physical copy or not, um, but everyone knew what the language was. Um, finally, I would also say the evidence was not entirely uncontroverted as to their relationship. This was a case with conflicting evidence um, about what the, the history they had as well as what happened. Uh, Mr. Hooper left his hotel room five years ago with a gunshot wound. Ms. Thomas left bruised and scratched. Um, the jury was deprived of an instruction that would have allowed them uh, to use self-defense, and we'd ask this court to reverse for a new trial. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone. Again, we appreciate y'all being here in Morganton with us. All right. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes.